people change in four different seasons. We're talking about change. You will never change when you see the light. I'm sorry, you won't. You'll only change when you feel the heat. You change your shoes when your damn feet hurt, right? You'll never change that which you tolerate. You'll only change when you get angry. We got to get angry with ourselves, right? Because we got to do this work. So there are four seasons when we change. We change when we hurt enough and we have to. I think we're hurting. We change when we see enough and we're inspired to. So models like Bo and like Emmerich are extraordinarily important. Models. You change when you learn enough and you want to. So financial education, financial literacy, every place. There shouldn't be a workplace that employs people that's Black-owned, that does not have some sort of weekly or monthly financial literacy program just basic stuff. So the key to learning is simplicity and repetition. We've got to say it over and over and over. And we change when we receive enough and we're able. Hey world, welcome to the Color of Money podcast. I'm so excited about today. I cannot tell you I'm beside myself today. I have just just brilliant brains on this line right now. And I have our co-host, Bowman Keaty, and the incomparable Dr. George C. Frazier. And George Frazier, he's the chairman and CEO of FrazierNet, a company that was founded 32 years ago. And it's just a global network of about economic development, economic empowerment, and people for people of African descent. George was born in Brooklyn, New York, he was an orphan and a foster child. So one of the conversations and one of the things that always excites me about George is that George is a no limitations guy. He said, you and God put you here for a reason. And you have to figure out what that reason is and make the best of your purpose of being here. George has been my mentor for the past 15 years. And if you when you when you hear this voice, you will understand if you know me where a lot of me come from. And I attribute that to this wonderful, marvelous human being named George C. Frazier. And then for those of you who really aren't aware of what's really happening, uh, my guy, Bo, Bo Minkiti, Bo is that other brain. So I'm surrounded by brains. Bo is like this, uh, Bo is like the, uh, people, call, people call me an oracle. That's a lot. Bo is oracle. Bo is like oracle and Google combined. He has this brain that just comes up with all kinds of thoughts, ideas, and he puts it in a succinct way where either you get it or you don't get it. If you don't get it, you probably brain dead. But that's a different conversation. So what we're going to talk about today, we're talking about multi-generational wealth. It's a conversation that we don't have on a, on a frequent basis, but we're going to talk about that today. And a beautiful part about the conversation today is we're bringing it from three different perspectives. We're bringing it from a perspective of someone born in the 40s, someone born in the 50s, born in the 40s, born in the 60s, born in the 70s. This is going to be a great conversation. I'm just excited about it. And George, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm just excited. As a matter of fact, I'm like, I'm like, I'm a little giddy today. And as much as as much as we've come in contact with each other, as much as our, as strong as our relationship is, I'm a little bit giddy today. So if I'm uncomposed, don't hold it against me. But this is where I really want to start. I want to start this conversation right now, hitting it hard, George. 
from a historical perspective, you know, wealth in our community, what, what have you seen as in your in your existence, our perspective in the black community about wealth and what's the historical press, uh, perspective of that and how we look at that? Yeah, um, to take a Shakespearean quote, it is the best of times and it is the worst of times. Uh, based on my research and 78 years of studying this, I believe that Black America is in an existential crisis at this moment in time as it relates to economic development, wealth creation, closing the income and wealth gap between us and them, between Blacks and whites. So until Black America puts Black America first, Black America will always be last. To be Black and beautiful in this country means nothing unless you're Black and powerful. White folks are planning for three generations and we're planning for Saturday night, right? The goal is to win, brothers and sisters, not to look like we're winning, okay? I would rather carry a plastic bag, and you've heard me say this a thousand times, Emmerich, thank you for having me on, and Bo, it's an honor to be with you. But uh, I would rather carry a plastic bag with $5,000 in it than to carry a $5,000 Louis Vuitton bag with $100 in it. You ain't winning. Louis Vuitton is winning. Armani is winning. Nike is winning. Gucci is winning, right? We ain't winning. It's interesting to me, Emmerich, that the rich stay rich by pretending to be poor, and the poor stay poor while pretending to be rich. So if nothing changes... And this is, this is statistics, this is data. If nothing changes, we are effectively headed into a second slavery. Uh, this, is, um, this is not Dr. Fraser in hyperbole. This is the Institute of Pol uh, Policy Studies, a major study, a longitudinal study on the data points and the trajectory of black wealth in America. Uh, it was put out in April of 2016. And... That's what it said. The final conclusion was that if nothing changes among African-Americans, it will take them 228 years, if ever, that's their words, not my words, to close the wealth gap between blacks and whites in America, right? It also said in the report that African-American baby boomers will be the first generation of Africans in America to raise another generation of Africans in America that will not do better than them. The report went on to say, and I'll finish with this and we can react to the rant, right? By 2053, by 2053, just 10 years after the country is projected to become majority non-white black Median families will own zero wealth if current trends continue. White median families will continue to own six figures. Okay, this is a major longitudinal study. They know more about our economics and spending habits than we do. They track everything. So this in 2016 is the second shot fired by their cannon as a warning to us. Now, the first shot you won't remember. 
But I remember because I was born 1945 and was a, 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 you know, a conscious thinking human being in 1965. But in 1964, this is the first shot now. 1964, President Lyndon Johnson noticed that the out-of-wedlock birth rate of black people in America at that time was five times higher than white out-of-wedlock birth rates. We were 25% and they were 5%. So he commissioned Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan to do a major study on why is this and what are the projections of this? It took a year for the study to come out. It came out in 1965, and the title of the report is The Negro Family, A Case for National Action. We were pissed off about that report. We thought and we said it was racist, but fundamentally what it said, I'll give you the bottom line, is that if nothing changes in the out-of-wedlock birth rate of black people over the next 40 years, if nothing changes, if they don't fix it, we cannot legislate how you screw and who you screw and what you do after you screw. We cannot legislate that. If you don't fix it, your out-of-wedlock birth rate will be 75%. That will lay the infrastructure and foundation for the division and the breakup of the black family and your ability to build wealth with two people instead of one will be serious will seriously deteriorate we poo-pooed that report we did nothing what happened exactly what they projected 64 percent of our children are raised by a single parent family mostly moms and 80 percent of our children are born out of wedlock so you want to know a foundational reason for our decline in wealth it is the breakup of the black family, which is in an existential crisis at this moment in time. So I'll put a pin in it. We'll, we can expand on that. There's I love more. that. Right. I, I love but it. And I see Bo leaning forward. I want to throw the gauntlet down. This I, brothers and sisters, it's up to I, you. I already knew it was going to happen. That's why I was so excited. <laughs> I seen Bo lean forward. Bo, go ahead, because I, I see it coming. I saw you lean forward, and he's like, no, okay. I mean, wow, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, you could definitely put the gauntlet down. I want to go back. I want to go back to one thing you said early or in, in, in what you were talking about, because it ties to something we actually talked about a little earlier on an episode of this podcast, which is you said, the goal is to win not look like I am winning. And and we have a generation, you know, not just of our people, but of but of, of the country that is obsessed with looking like they're winning. And we had a conversation, you know, the other day about, you know, I grew up in New England, um, this place where where wealth is subtle. It, it it's hidden, right? Um, and I struggled a lot as a young, you know, black man with flashiness, with, with chains and clothes and cars. And I was telling Daniel that I had this, and Emmerich, that I had this realization that ultimately, psychologically, we're pushing for the same thing, which is to be seen as valuable. And, and 
yet we are using somebody else's standard of value to determine our value. And it just so happens that what we put on us is easier to see than what's inside of us or what's in our our bank accounts or what's in some place that people don't see. And so that draws us forward. But I guess the question I'm I'm interested in hearing from you on is um, how much of that is about people having bad priorities or is it about the psychology of showing up every day and wanting to be seen as valuable in a world that doesn't see you as valuable? That's right. Well, well, Bo, you answered your own question. That's why you uh, you have this big brain. That's exactly right. It is simply a coping mechanism to decoratively represent who we'd like to be. It is what is available to us. This is it's easy to flex and flash. It does not take the hard work of really planning and building and managing wealth. It is simply the easy way out. Now, it is not all of us. It's not all of us. Because some of us have overcome that. It is just most of us. Much of that deeply is tied to we actually do not really understand who we are. Right? And... My little rant on that is, and, and ever has heard this a million times, but I'm going to keep saying it because it deserves repeating. We actually do not know who we are. We have been so psychologically beaten. We have gone through a psychological holocaust, second to none, in the history of humankind. Um, our memory has been erased. Our accomplishments have been erased. We are God's first people, Bo. We're gods. That's not hype. That's science. That's anthropology. We are God's first people. We are the children of the slaves that would not die, that we have the genetic encoding of the great kings and queens of Africa, that we were building pyramids, solving complex engineering problems when other cultures were living in caves, practicing cannibalism in the Caucasus Mountains. Now, much is being done now to recognize that incredibly rich history. Much more is being done now. We see it all over social media. So thank God for social media on that. And I think it will take, people ask me all the time, Dr. Fritz, how long will it take to close the income and wealth gap between black people and white people? I say, oh, about 100 years, three to five generations, right? With the right modeling, the right financial education, the black church taking up the the mantra of, of financial literacy and teaching financial education and entrepreneurship and skills development. I mean, that's the most important, the most powerful institution in our culture historically. So we need everybody fighting this battle. And I think that is finally registering with folk. I don't think three generations from now, to your very, very important point, that we are going to be flexing like we're flexing now. I think talking about your assets 
in the 20, the, lat, the latter part of the 21st century will be the new flex. Talking about your investments will be the new flex, not your gold chain. Now you see how Jay-Z is dressing, right? Right? You saw pictures of Jay-Z back in the day when he was the rapper, big gold chains, right? Louis Vuitton. Right? You see how Jay-Z's dressing now? Now that he's a billionaire, t-shirt, a simple jacket and a pair of pants. He, he ain't flexing that way anymore. Right. right? You, so I think it's going to come to that. And, and, That's and a great question. And, and when we and in that dialogue right there, right, that comes to a different point where we talk about how do we regain the wealth that has passed through. I won't say that we've lost. I said it's passed through our hands. How do we regain this wealth? Because we had a, a wealth, we were developing a wealthy mindset. And again, socialization has had its effect on the wealth of the community. How do we regain it? Go ahead, Bo. No, I was going to add to what Emmerich said, and I'm interested in your perspective on this, Dr. Frazier. Like so much of what we've held up is individual payment for performance. So our idols are people who are highly paid for a unique and singular talent, not people that have been able to bring together uh, a community or that have deployed capital. So they are um, singular obtainers of some small piece of capital that somebody else has for their unique talent versus deployers of capital. You know, we always say when we teach wealth building, there's time and talent for money, there's time and talent and money for money, and there's money for money. And we are playing heavily in the time and talent for money space. And entrepreneurship becomes the time and talent and money for money space. And ultimately there's an investment space that's money for money. So how do we move through that as a, as, as a people, as a community, and start to kill some of this idea of the one exceptional person who gets paid for their talent. They understand, and we under, and we need to understand that people change in four different seasons. Because we're talking about change. You will never change when you see the light. I'm sorry, you won't. You'll only change when you feel the heat. You change your shoes when your damn feet hurt, right? You'll never change that which you tolerate. You'll only change when you get angry, we, right? We, we, we got to get angry with ourselves, right? Because we got to do this work. So there are four seasons when we change. We change when we hurt enough and we have to. I think we're hurting. We change when we see enough and we're inspired to. So models like Bo and like Emmerich are extraordinarily important models. You change when you learn enough and you want to. So financial education, financial literacy, every place. There shouldn't be a workplace that employs people that, that's black owned, that does not have some sort of weekly or monthly financial literacy program. Just basic stuff. So the key to learning is simplicity and repetition. We've got to say it over and over and over. Uh, and we change when we see, when we receive enough and we're able to. So I, 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 I think we are, we are well on our way to changing our mindset. We're getting models and people and teachers and leaders 
who are focused on this. And then the progressive black churches are now focusing on financial education and entrepreneurial development. And by the way, where did entrepreneurship start first for black folk in America? In the black church. Where did skills development start first in America? What are we here? In the black church. So that will play a critical role. And I think we're moving in that direction. So, George, when when you had that conversation about the church and the church being the, the cornerstone, and we're talking about moving forward, moving forward, you know, how do we really impact the thought on wealth? I get it. Um, the church is a cornerstone. Other than the church, where do you see us having the having a mechanism that has the highest and best impact on wealth in the community? Social media. Social media. Um, we are the biggest consumers, by the way, of social media. Lessons on social media, short lessons. I mean, we spend four hours a day, Black people, on social media. There was a study done about eight years ago on television viewing, by the way. By cultural group. We, this was about seven years ago. We were number one in the entire world, black people, on number of hours viewing television per week. 72 hours a week, 10 hours a day is what we consumed on television. Now, social media has supplanted that. And it has taken four to five of those TV hours away and they're looking at a smaller screen. So there is a huge opportunity to give micro lessons on social media. You know, one minute videos, two minute videos, because that's, you know, we have the attention span of a gnat, right? So now certainly there's, there, there, there's a small percentage of our, our people that, that, that will consume long form videos and so on. And I say long form on social media, three to five minutes, seven minutes. And if it's a compelling and passionate lecture, maybe more. But you want to reach black people, reach them on social media. Okay. So we're in that space of social media. We're in that space of, you know, three to five to seven minute lessons. Bo, I'm coming back to you because I, I want you, I want to get your opinion because I, and I, I kind of think I know what it is, and we're going to hear it from you. When you talk about the impact on wealth, what's your thought about the highest and best impact on wealth in our community moving forward? Well, one of the things that, that, that strikes me, even from what Dr. Frazier was saying earlier, that you have the difference between working for money and putting money to work for you. One of the biggest challenges we have in closing a wealth gap is that there are less individual resources in families, less money to go put to work because of the history that people are quick to forget while they live off of the resources that were generated in prior generations. So we say this is an issue of the past, but the issue of the past actually generated resource that is being deployed today. And so I think there's this interesting combination. As individuals, as individual entrepreneurs, individual business people, as individual families, 
we have less resource. It's just a fact. And so if we are going to go deploy resource to create more resource, we need more communal ways of deploying resource. Yet we live in a world that has mythologized and seduced us into this ego of sort of the phoenix that rose from the ashes. You know, Emmerich, you and I always talk about this. Be the one successful one. You're the one success. You made it. Oh, man, Emmerich, you made it. Such a such an articulate guy. He was able to achieve this. That can be seducing to people because it plays to their ego. It plays to their identity of uniqueness and specialness. Yet the reality is nobody succeeded on their own. You may have come from a challenging place. You may have been without a family. You may have been missing different pieces. But there was some teacher, somebody at church, somebody somewhere who invested in you and helped you grow. And so I think communities that have effectively overcome adversity, especially economically, have figured out how to work together in a way that advances them collectively. And I think that's something that is part of the solution we need to have as we go forward. Um, It can't be the individual iconic person of color. We have to move as a community in a way that creates um, opportunity and pools resource to take down opportunity. And so when you talk about that, um, it it comes back to a a conversation that that I have um, particularly in my mentoring group, I said some. I say somebody gave you a hand up, a leg up, a foot up, so you owe it back to the community to help somebody else because you didn't just show up here. And the other part about that idea of that one person, and, and I believe where we can benefit in that group economics environment is just to keep that frame of mind is that you're never successful. You only have measures of success, right? Because success is, a, is an evolving journey. And just because we have a measure of success or a measure of success in this particular area, that's where you are at that particular time. The real magic happens when you understand that your measure of success was dependent on other people helping you. And the real question is, how many other people are you going to help in your success Eric. journey? Yes, sir. I'm going to ask a controversial question here, too, because I think this is also a piece of it. I think you said that so beautifully. But when I succeed, when I build a building, somebody asks me, what am I doing to help my my brothers out that are struggling? Nobody asked my counterpart that same question. So how does the collective action become something that propels us forward not something that drags us down as an albatross around our neck. There's a lot of studies on how first-generation wealth is often eroded by the obligations that that first-generation wealth has to a bunch of non-wealth. And so we got to ask the question, when we come together as a community, is our obligation to each other propelling us forward, or are we actually just taking, you know, take some of our athletes, they make it, they have this large income, and now everybody, they got an entourage and all their boys are eating off of them. They're not lifting them up. They're not figuring out how to plus their success journey. They're figuring out how to ride their success journey. So we've got to figure out collective action that multiplies, not detracts from those initial moments of success that you talked about. Right. And and George says this so well. 
And I'll never forget this. George has a saying, say, the best way you can help the poor is not to become one of them. So, Bo, because we're winding down in our time, so we there's some things that we absolutely have to cover. Bo, your thought leaders, who do you have as the potential thought leaders in the community that you say this people could, this person or these this group of people could help our community lean into uh, this wealth conversation? Well, I think it's really interesting because, and it's really cool just listening, um, but, you know, to this conversation and being inspired by the two of you. You know, my experience has been much more on the sort of gritty new age entrepreneur side of it. And I think that there's a conversation about how does the thought leadership um, community, uh, the church, um, some of these pieces in politics intertwine with business. Because I do believe that the social justice of our day is economics and economic development. And there, there was a different movement. We had a movement for equality, right? We now need an economic movement. And, and because we don't have, we're not starting with a lot, this, uh, this entrepreneurial space becomes where you actually create the generational wealth in our community that's been missing. And so I look at, you know, uh, you know, I look at some of the entrepreneurial folks and think, well, how do we tie that in to some of the broader thought process and community so that we get those that learn and earn, as, as, as Dr. Frazier said, to return and to share that journey as we go forward. So I'm excited about this mix of voices that we could have, where we bring some of the folks that are early in their journeys or in the middle of those journeys of building businesses that actually create the wealth in our communities um, and get them engaged. So I'm looking forward to bringing some of those folks on. And, and I love the dialogue between those those two different perspectives. Yeah, and, and Bo, I got, I got a mantra for you. And this is our mantra for the Power Networking Conference along with earn, Learn, Earn, and Return. Economics is the new black power. Economics must become the new black power. Freedom was, the, was, was, was black power. Our fight for freedom was prefaced by black power, black power. We want to be free. Civil rights, voting rights, public access to the destruction of Jim Crow, right, with the, with, with, with the fist. Um, now it's economics, to your point. That's exactly right. And that has to be institutionalized. That has to be put into the brain. It's a simple way of reprogramming. That's what we have to do. We must reprogram those who need it. And there are plenty who do. That's the whole purpose of the Power Networking Conference 22 years in. We're getting ready to do our 23rd. And and and, and Emmerich, if you'll allow me, just say one thing about the PNC conference. Uh, we had an awesome conference in our final year in Houston. We're moving into Charlotte for the next three years and then to Atlanta for life. That's a whole nother story. Um, we've got a special offer for those of you that are watching this for PNC 2022, we're in July 10th through the 13th next year. And right now we want to 
make you a special offer good to the end of October. Uh, we want to give you a full adult registration and then encourage you to bring a young person, 17 to 25. We should be conferencing with young people at the feet of masters. So it's you and the young person at the rack rate for that program is $2,300. We have a special offer good to the end of October for $499. A 73% discount. Take advantage of that, brothers and sisters. Very simple to do. Email me, gfraser, F-R-A-S-E-R, just like you see it at the bottom of the screen, gfraser at frasernet.com. G Fraser at FraserNet.com. In the subject, put I'm in. And then in the body of the email, your full name and your cell number. And yes, I will call you and we'll handle it over the phone. Thank you, Don. Hey, there's one thing we, we I, I cannot, I can't let this slip, Bo. You said something. You said we're not starting with a lot. I believe that that's a myth. I believe that we're starting with a whole lot. I believe that we're starting with abundance. The challenge is that individually, we're not starting with a lot. Collectively, when we can harness that group energy, we're starting with so much more. And the real conversation is, how do we get more of us to do more? Because if if more of us do more, one of us never has to do a lot. And, and in that space, I, I just believe that we just have to figure out where we're going with this. I love that. Let me say say that another way, because I love what you just said. We need a lot of us doing a little instead of a few of us doing a lot. And therein lies our damn problem. So that your thought is profound and spot on. So I wanna I wanna I wanna give deference to you, Dr. Frazier, because I wanna I want this conversation. I want us to let's talk about a let's give a synopsis of a, a brief synopsis synopsis of a solution. Cause it, we we have a lot of dialogue. So beyond the dialogue, how do we move forward when we're having this multi-generational wealth conversation? How do we move forward? You give me just Three things that you believe that we could do: walk out away from this, walk away from this podcast, and say, if, if we work on these three things, we will have a profound effect or a profound impact on multi generational wealth in the community. New habits, new habits. Right. You just don't have a future. Your habits dictate your future. So I want to say this, brothers and sisters, and still be loved and we'll and we'll be out of here. Uh, there's some broke ass habits that we have to solve. One, not talking about money at home, at work and in the community. Right. Borrowing on credit cards. That's a broke ass habit. Impulse purchases. That's a bad ass habit. Buying to impress. That's a bad ass habit. Having no emergency fund. That's a bad ass habit and not saving at least 10 percent of your income. I don't give a shit how much you make. Put 10 percent aside. Get out of those badass habits and things will level out, will smooth out for you. Over time, over time, as Bo said, we have time, right? We have time. We don't know how much, right? And we don't want to know. Max it out. Max it out. Three fundamental foundations for wealth. 
investing, which is the leverage of money, real estate, which is the leverage of debt, okay, and business, which is the leverage of experience. Those are the three foundations of money. I like that. I enjoy this conversation. I really don't want to end this conversation. I could, I think we could go on for another couple of hours. However, th th that's not the way we're built at this time. Hey, Bo, my co-host for the day, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you. Uh, I'm looking forward to having more conversations, more co-hosting opportunities. I love it. I love it. I love it. Dr. Frazier, affectionately, George. I love you, man. I appreciate you. I appreciate you being here. Uh, we have to have more dialogue about this conversation right here on this podcast with you. So I'm not sure we'll how we're going to work two. this. We'll do a part two. To be continued. continued. <laughs> 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 All right. So, and that's it for us today. Um, this conversation about multi-generational wealth on the Color of Money podcast. We'll be back next week. Another great conversation. Another great guest. Thank you so much, George. I appreciate you. I love you. Thank you both for being a great co-host today. Great to meet you. Doc. Let's keep going, gentlemen. God That's bless it. you. Thank Bye. you. Follow the Color of Money podcast today and get notified when new episodes are released weekly. Be part of this transformative listening experience. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The views, thoughts, and opinions of the guest represent those of the guest and not KWRI and its affiliates and should not be construed as financial, economic, legal, tax, or other advice. This podcast is provided without any warranty or guarantee of its accuracy, completeness, timeliness, or results from using the information. 